Hello, and welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board, the new podcast dedicated to discussing social and political issues in the Nashville community. I'm your host, Benjamin Eagles. Welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board. Today, in part two of a series with candidates running for mayor of Nashville, I'm joined by Representative Harold Love. Harold Love has served in the state legislature for six years, uh, representing District 58. Uh, He is a TSU alum, native of Nashville. He earned a master's in theology from Vanderbilt, and most recently a PhD in public policy from Tennessee State. Uh, Mr. Love is pastor at Lee Chapel AME Church in North Nashville, and he is one of 13 candidates running for mayor of Nashville. So, Representative Love, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yes, sir. Glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Anything you want to add to that background that voters should know about you? No, um, just that I've had a great opportunity to be blessed by Nashville from an educational background, from K-12, through started at John Early and finished White Creek High School, to having the chance to help out in 2010 when our city was flooded and had so many people who were uh, in a desperate situation to be able to help them out through my former church, St. Paul AME Church over in West Hamilton. So that makes me who I am. Is there anything about your background that people don't know that might not be uh, politics related? But what's one one thing about your background that people don't know? Non-politics related that people may not know is I marched in the band at Tennessee State University also marched in the high school band at White's Creek. And one of the joys of my high school experience was that moment in my uh, end of my sophomore year over the summer, going to my junior year, uh, the band director, Robert Churchwell, gave me the call over the summer and said, uh, I thought about it. I want you to be the drum major next year. And so as a, as a ending sophomore going into my junior year, I got a chance to be the drum major. And then got a chance to come back my senior year as drum major again. So to have two years as a high school drum major, uh, I look back on it now and you talk about just the trust that a teacher and a band director would put in you to lead the band and the wonderful experience that I had in that, which led, of course, again, to me going to Tennessee State University and marching the band there. That's quite a leadership experience. And now you're running basically to be drum major of a city. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. One could say it like that. So after the scandal that ended Mayor Barry's tenure and also the resounding defeat of the transit referendum, many observers have said that we're facing a crisis of trust in our local government. Would you agree? And if so, how would you restore the public trust? Sure. One thing I remind people of when I have conversations about voting and about governance is the fact that at every level, federal, state, and local, our government is funded uh, by fees and taxes that people and businesses pay. Fees and taxes fund our government, and they are supposed to be used to provide basic government services like the paving of roads, like the repair of highways, like our public school system, right, and our police and our fire. Those basic services, our, our water and sewage, those things. And when we have instances where those who are elected to head our government, to be honored, to be in that position, to represent us, when we have instances where the trust is eroded by their actions, it then begins to erode our trust in government in general. And that becomes problematic because we have our government here to, again, 
protect us if they're police, to uh, keep us from hurt, harm, and danger from fires if they're the fire department, to educate our children, all these things. And one way that you restore the trust, I think, is with transparency, particularly with the budget issues. The average citizen uh, is probably not going to read the full city budget. Uh, we experience this also on the state level. Most Tennesseans have not read the full state budget to know where every page speaks to a specific thing. They most trust. of the legislators even. Right, most, <laughs> and some legislators, right. Uh, they put trust, and that's the whole purpose of having a representative democracy where mm-hmm. you elect me or I elect you along with 60,000 other people to say, I trust you enough to go to Capitol Hill in Nashville, Tennessee and deliberate and vote on things that will positively affect my life because I've already given the government, uh, sometimes not by choice, but by, you know, our, our fees and taxes, my investment into the system. So you must rebuild the trust with transparency and budget issues. You also must rebuild the trust in the way that you would engage people about policy before it's formed. One of the first one of the worst things that can happen is that you find out about the fact that we are going to sell the football stadium in the paper tomorrow and nobody knew about it. Right. You said, well, hold on. Isn't that where our football team plays? Right. You said, well, yeah, but we decided last night. Well, no, you can't do that. Right. The council voted and the mayor said or on a, on a state level, the governor decided and the uh, legislature voted or on a federal level, the president decided and the Congress voted. People want to be brought in at the level where policy is being formed so they can have input in that. And that's why you have to you know, build back trust by engaging people in conversation before policy is made. Is there a particular issue that came up here locally that you think took people by surprise? I think the issue with, uh, we'll use Metro General Hospital and Meharry and HCA, that conversation about uh, outpatient services being stopped uh, and inpatient services and those things being disrupted at Metro General. Uh, I think the conversation about Meharry uh, going to having having a partnership with HCA caught some folks up a surprise. Even though that's a private institution, it was the city kind of making that announcement. I think the issue with the plans to uh, deal with Fort Nagley caught some folks by surprise. And so when you have a series of these things happening, uh, p- people began to say, well, if this is going on, what else is going on that I may not know about. Mm -hmm. That's a fair point. And recognizing that you're a pastor with a background in theology, what role does faith play in your decision-making and how would it affect how you lead a city? There was a question raised about that, I guess about two years ago, between myself and another legislator. They want to know how did our faith interact and how we made decisions. And for me, my faith informs me to be aware of the fact that People have different views on the same subject. And oftentimes a person may not support my particular view on the subject. And I have to be very careful and informed by my faith not to take offense by that. And I use for an example the fact that I have a bill proposed that's going to do a great and wonderful thing for our state. And I may have a colleague who votes against it and speaks very negatively about it. My faith informs me not to take that personally. My faith informs me to still treat him or her fairly. My faith informs me that I have a job to do and I can't let my personal feelings get involved. So my faith has helped me in the state legislature. It'll help me also in the state level because 
it also will allow me to have conversations about how we engage faith institutions to assist with uh, government outreach. For example, I use the flood of 2010 as an example. There was no way that the city of Nashville could have effectively reached all the homes that were reached in the flood repair. We had faith institutions that came in. Uh, Billy Graham Samaritan Purse and other institutions came in to uh, deal with helping. It was a faith component of those organizations that help get people back in their homes. So for me, that's that's one thing I would also use is uh, my connection with faith institutions to have them engage in helping us provide some services to persons in the city that might need help, particularly when we're talking about mental health issues. We're talking about uh, health care. Uh, the state of Tennessee uses faith institutions to help persons deal with drug addiction. I'd like to see the city of Nashville also uh, take a page from that and use it also. So how would your experience as a legislator over the last six years, how translatable is that to serving as the chief executive of a city? So when we talk about the legislative role in forming policy, uh, we must remember that uh, we introduce bills and bills are deliberated and then bills are carried out. What most people don't know is that we also have bills that we call an administration bill. These are initiatives that are sent down from the executive branch. These are ideas that the executive has that the governor may have and say, listen, I want to see us address juvenile justice. And the governor will have a conversation with a legislator about bringing forth the bill as the ideas forming the governor's conversations. That's one way that it is translatable because I know how policy is made. Policy is made with conversation between departments, interest groups, and legislators about the policy. Again, oftentimes the executive is the one who initiates those conversations. Also, the executive is the one who initiates the conversation about the budget, because in most instances, the governor introduces his budget through the state of the state. The mayor introduces his budget through the state of Metro. Right. And we have instances then where the legislative branch evaluates it the proposed budget, and then makes changes if necessary to that budget. To be an executive means that you carry out laws that have been passed. Uh, It means that you also help shape and set policy for that city. So for me, having the experience of being in government for six years, being in a government office is translatable because it has trained me to be in what I call a policy mind, where I'm thinking about what is a policy solution to this problem we're facing. My experience in the legislature also would I think help Nashville because I still have colleagues who are there on both sides of the aisle that I could reach out to, to help mitigate some of the uh, instances where the legislature may feel a need to exact policies that would not be necessarily be fair or helpful to Nashville. And we've seen it happen time and time again, where Metro proposed something and the general assembly would overturn it. That has happened a lot on any issue from most recently with immigration to local hire. Yes. You mentioned the budget. Uh, We're currently in the process of uh, approving and finalizing a budget for Metro. How did the city end up in this particular financial situation with a $34 million revenue shortfall? And in concrete terms, how would you write the ship? Yeah. It is my understanding that there were some issues with uh, an unexpectedly high number of reevaluations of property. That left us with um, lower than expected revenues. Anytime you deal with a budget and you, you're dealing with projections, and I think people need to understand that also, when the budget is made, it is a projection of revenues 
and you know what expenses you're going to have generally. And you have to make cuts sometimes because revenues may fall short of what you were expecting. And now you must cut some programs and you hopefully don't cut personnel. But I think that's what we saw was that uh, school board budget was reduced and there's an attempt being made to sell some property in order to make the budget shortfall go away. For me, writing the ship involves uh, taking a very comprehensive look at the budget and trying to discover where there are areas where we are uh, spending more money than we should be and does not negatively impact personnel. And people oftentimes say, well, there's no more money in the budget. I've had an opportunity for the last uh, few years to sit on finance, ways and means in the state house as a member of that committee. Every department for the state came and testified to us about their budget request and about what they spent last year. It has been my experience that if you're able to have conversations with uh, departments and able to figure out what direction they're trying to go in and try to find some cost savings, you save the city money, you save the taxpayers money, and you're able to figure out what then you can sure up that needs to be funded. So riding the ship involves looking at the budget from an approach of trying to figure out what services are being provided and if there are some redundant services that are being financed, right, we may find a way to get away from those. It's a wonderful opportunity now. Looking through a budget can be very daunting because uh, you also have to start asking questions about why are we doing what we are doing in this budget? And that begins to will begin to uh, peel back the onion, so to speak, about how we got to where we are. And we oftentimes refer to the, the budget as a moral document because it does address many of the issues and needs in our city. Recently, the SEIU uh, Service Employees Union came out and kind of co-endorsed yourself, Erica Gilmore, and also Mayor David Briley. Mayor Briley's proposed budget got rid of the cost of living adjustment for Metro employees. Would you have made that same decision? I I, I try not to second guess uh, people, uh, but I will say this. Uh, if I were in that position, I think my initial uh, step would have been to be be very deliberate about where we could find, uh, again, other expenditures to reduce. Uh, there would also be a conversation, I think, on my part to to say to SEIU and to say to all of our city employees and our first responders, um, the budget as it stands now, does not permit us to do what we promised last year. I'm going to engage Metro Council in a conversation about how we might increase revenues before we make this final decision about not giving you a pay raise. Because the truth of the matter is, I think a lot of Metro Council persons were caught off guard by the cuts in the pay raise. And they may have been amenable to look at other revenue streams, uh, whether it's a tax on new development in the city or an increase in responsibility of departments to pay out of their budget maybe some of those raises. You never know what could have happened. I mean, sometimes departments have money in their budgets uh, to make pay raises or adjustments for their own particular employees. And so then what you're doing is you're mitigating the number of departments that may need assistance from the city because if five or six departments can take care of the pay raises in their area out of their own budget, right? Then the city then 
is not required to put in so much money. Now, of course, we know that every department sends a request to the city, uh, and that's part of the larger budget. But you, again, have to look at also departmental budgets and see if there's any room in their budget to make those adjustments. Speaking of revenue streams, the current property tax rate in Davidson County is at an all-time low. Mayor Bradley has said he's committed to not raising the property tax. What's your position, and would you be amenable to raising the property tax? One of the benefits of new development is that it would increase the tax revenues from property. We are in a position where we oftentimes want to reduce as much of a tax as we can on people. I've always been a supporter of reducing the sales tax on groceries, and we don't want to, if we have to, raise any more taxes. Uh, However, um, when a city grows and you have a cost increase in services provided, there are only a certain number of income streams you can look at. And I think if everybody across the, the, the city would be honest with themselves, the city's growing and we should not be in this budget shortfall. So here's what I would suggest. What would it look like for the mayor to have an honest conversation with the citizens and say, look, our property tax rate is at an all-time low. We are looking at a shortfall on budget revenues. Would you be open as a property taxpayer to pay one cent, two cent extra, right? Not one or two percent, but one cent or two cent extra, right? On your property tax. What would that look like if folks were willing to pay an extra two or three or 10 cent on their property? If that were to bring in, what would we say if, if a 10 cent property tax increase brought in $300 million, right? And that took care of all our budget shortfalls and took care of the pay raises for the city employees. I would dare say that I think that there may be persons who would be open to that because you're being transparent with them. You're being open and clear with them and saying, here's where we are. Here's where we might get to the place we're trying to go. As a quick note, if you're enjoying the Nashville Sounding Board, please leave a review or a rating on the Apple Podcasts app or your app of choice. I think just today, uh, Mayor Bradley's campaign put out a new TV ad entitled Back to the Basics. And I noticed a couple weeks ago uh, that that was kind of your original tagline. Who used that tagline first? Because it is a good one. It is a good one. Um, the only evidence I have is a Facebook post that I put up in April where I was listing out my agenda that I had copied and pasted from my campaign website. And in that it had the issues of education and housing, safety and healthcare. And we use a hashtag, you know, love for education back to the basics or love for Nashville hashtag back to the basics or another instance may have been uh, hashtag love for healthcare hashtag back to the basics um, so the only answer I can give as I'm as I'm smiling here uh, talking to you is that I had not seen the commercial because it's just running uh, and we're in May uh, I wasn't uh, on their production lot when they filmed it because it's just not me uh, we put it up in April, and I've had folks ask me, what do you think about it? I said, listen, all I can say is I know what I thought about, and I know what I put out. And it was based on the fact that we had said that one of the problems we had in Nashville was that we got away from the basics. We got away from uh, the conversation about what it looked like to be 
you know, getting back to the basics of providing a good education for our children, providing good health care for our citizens, providing a safe neighborhood. And we decided also not to stop using it uh, because it was something that we were using and we were fine with it. And uh, we know that there were some comparisons. There were some people who text me and say, hey, that's our slogan. Let's listen. This, that's fine. It, it, it's... it's um, I would liken it to say I I can't hold the uh, patent on saying um, love for Nashville or love for mayor. You know, someone else may say they're for Nashville or they should be elected mayor. Uh, I will say this, though, that it provides good conversation and dialogue because for me to say getting back to the basics, I can expound upon it and say what I mean by that. Twenty four percent of our high school graduates who go to college. That's, that's the graduation rate. Of all of our high school graduates, the ones who go to college, only 24% of them graduate. Now, we got to get back to the basics of, of providing a good support system for our students so that when they decide to go to college, they can graduate, right? Because it's, it's, it's a bit difficult to, to say you know, to a student when they graduate from high school and they want to go to college, um, we're not going to support you anymore, right? We got to get back to the basics of providing safety for our seniors and for our children in the playgrounds in our neighborhoods, which means we got to have a conversation about what it means to invest in our communities. Getting back to the basics of healthcare means that you should have communities where there are access to fresh fruits and vegetables, where there are grocery stores. In my neighborhood, there are very few grocery stores. Uh, there's that's getting back to the basics. You know, getting back to the base of housing means that we don't have people who are unable to find a decent place to rent in Nashville. So if the basics are education, affordable housing, roads, safety, if those are the basics, the implication of back to the basics in my mind is that we have strayed away from that focus. Can you be specific? What exactly are we are we uh, referring to here? What have, yeah. What has the city done that has strayed away from the right. basics? So we strayed away from the basics. Take roads, right? It should not be the case that we have roads in the city of Nashville that have several potholes. Uh, it should not be the case that we have a bus um, bench that was taken up and has been gone for a month, right? Uh, we should have not gotten away from the place where, as a community, we don't have our neighborhood associations as active as they are because neighbors aren't engaging with each other anymore as a city we got away from the basics of uh, providing avenues for health care and and mental health services and physical health development we got away from that and as a result we did what i called started growing without a purpose we got to grow with a purpose we can't just have things pop up right all it takes is for our minds to harken back to the time in nashville before we had any professional football team or hockey team, or soon-to-be soccer team, right? Take our minds back to that place and talk about the fact that you know, we had good interaction between parents and community members to help our kids in school. We had good support from businesses. We had opportunities for folks to get housing. But then we started growing and growing and growing, and we got so excited about the growth, we forgot about the communities that were left behind. We got so excited about bringing companies in to to have headquarters here. We forgot about the conversation of saying, now you're located here. What 
kind of programs will you help provide for our students in our schools? What kind of after school programs will you invest in? Uh, we want we want to get back to that place where we do have safe neighborhoods, where we do have roads that are fixed, where we do have infrastructure taken care of, where we do have a good health care system. You mentioned the sports teams. I saw today that uh, the Preds have come out as an organization, as a franchise, and endorsed Mayor Briley in, in this campaign. Um, the city is also in the midst of bringing a professional soccer team to, to Nashville. Can you talk a little bit about the soccer deal and where you stand on, mm. on that? Right. Um, just as proud as anybody else was to hear that we were announced a soccer team, as we talk about budget and priorities, uh, one has to be aware of the optics in such a deal. We talk about a huge amount of money being being financed. Um, how can we ensure that our city employees right, and our schools also get investments into their success? It does us no good to have a professional football team, professional hockey team, professional soccer team, right, and, and a minor league baseball team, and all of them have arenas or stadiums to play in, and we can't pave our streets. We can't fix the potholes. What does that say about our city? That we have schools that are underfunded or schools that are being sold to make the budget. What does that say about our city when we have that and yet we're going to build another structure? So my concern is about that. I do also have concerns about the fact that we have a part of Nashville that some would say don't want the soccer stadium. We have another part of Nashville that's saying we would love to have the soccer stadium. And are you are you talking about the Metro Center area? Correct. And now we got to figure out where we stand on that, because there are some who would say that we have to have it in that location or else the deal is off. There are others who say, well, the deal won't be off if we move the stadium. I've raised the question of at what point would the mayor of the city be able to have a conversation with uh, the professional soccer association and say, listen, we know you agree to uh, come here if we put the stadium here. Uh, is it a deal breaker if we move it to a different location? Moving into another area of some controversy, the group Community Oversight Now is pushing for a, a community oversight board to investigate uh, community allegations of police misconduct, and they're in the midst of gathering petition signatures to get a charter amendment on the ballot. Would you support the formation of a community oversight board and, and have you signed that petition? Yeah. So they approached uh, an organization that I was president of a couple of years back, uh, the Interdenominational Ministers Fellowship, IMF. IMF was in conversations with uh, NOAA about such a board and about how we might best approach it. At that time, I was wearing, of course, two hats, IMF president and also state representative. And I was engaged in conversation to find out you know, what role the state could play uh, in trying to get subpoena power if we went through this. And in those conversations, I was very supportive of the need because much of the mistrust in communities in Nashville of the police department is based on the fact that for many persons, a less than pleasant interaction with the police becomes an all too consistent and often story. How are we to move forward in the city of Nashville unless we have a situation where uh, persons are feeling empowered to have their voice heard about 
issues that they have gone through with the police department. For the police, I would say this. I know that it looks like an indictment on them when you have a community oversight board. It looks like you are being uh, in, uh, accused of something you didn't do. There's an opportunity for law enforcement officers who are not guilty of doing things to see this as an opportunity to be exonerated. You know, it, it's, yeah, it, you got a second set of eyes looking at it. There was nothing that was done wrong, and we can move on. Now you have the proven evidence because it was someone else who looked at it, and they said that it was nothing there. It also gives an opportunity for us to talk about how we do a better job of engaging citizens in the uh, academy that the police go through. Uh, there's, a, I think, a Citizens Academy that they go through. There's also an opportunity for people to do a ride-along with the police to exactly see what police deal with every day. I did a ride-along several years back and was amazed at everything that they go through. Unless we're able to have this conversation, I think we're going to see our city continue to be divided among uh, different communities because the people who don't have these issues of being stopped oftentimes are not understanding why other communities would want to have it. Do you see the community oversight push as another way of potentially restoring the public's trust in local government? That could be one way um, because it's it's an oversight board that simply says, look, we want to look at what happened in this particular instance and have folks ask questions. Now, in that same regard, we must make sure that also the persons who are going to be participating uh, are able to engage in uh, civil conversations about what was uh, believed to have occurred. And we've lost some of that. We've lost, I think, uh, civil conversations. All one need do is just uh, take a casual look at someone's Twitter or Facebook page dealing with this mayoral race and see the loss of civility. And I'd hate to see it happen in, in our communities where you know, the, the image of police coming in the neighborhood is one of a negative one. Yeah, people basically see an issue and go to their respective corners and fight it out. On another controversial note, let's talk about transit. Um, you were not one of the local legislators who supported the transit initiative. You didn't support the previous plan. What would you do as mayor to address our, our transit needs? Sure. Uh, let me be uh, very clear about my position on the transit referendum. As a state representative, I voted for the Improve Act, which gave us the opportunity to have a local uh, referendum. In that vote for the Improve Act, I voted to reduce grocery sales tax. And when the plan came out, I did have concerns because the plan was going to increase grocery sales tax on the surcharge. For me, that was one of the first steps for my non-support of the plan, as was recorded in a newspaper article back in October, before there was even a mayor's race. As uh, as mayor, I do have concerns also about the kinds of taxes that we're going to use. In 1988, the General Assembly gave every city and county in Tennessee the opportunity to uh, mitigate the cost of new development by one of two things, an impact fee or a new development tax on new developments. The only city that didn't opt in to use it was Nashville. So now we have a situation where with the local referendum, we could not put a surcharge on new development because we were never collecting tax on it. State law says if you weren't collecting tax on it, you can't put a surcharge on it. So and that was one of the five taxes available, but we couldn't use that one. Exactly, because we never used it. So 
that would be my approach to look at how much money could be generated from a new development tax and see what taxes we could mitigate. Maybe we can mitigate the grocery sales tax by just using development tax and then go along with, again, the piece about getting back to the basics. Get back to the fact of repairing potholes uh, in roads may not seem like a glamorous thing, but I believe it has effect on traffic because I'm going to slow down if I'm driving 35 miles an hour and I see a pothole. And if you're behind me, you're going to slow down and then so on and so on. And so the cars behind you will slow down because they now must slow down for this pothole. Also, uh, looking at investing in an advanced signal lighting system so that you're not sitting at a red light in the morning and there's no traffic coming from across the street. And now traffic is backing up because you're waiting for that box to change the lights so you can go forward. What about yeah. Do you have any sort of sense as to why that hasn't already happened? That's something that was talked about. I remember Linda Rebrovic's campaign back in 2015. I remember Mayor Barry talking about that. It popped up again in the transit initiative, these these sort of smarter traffic lights. Any sort of sense why that hasn't already happened? There's a thing we talk about in uh, politics called a policy window. Uh, The policy window is based on the fact that when a window is opened up for you to put in policy that changes everything, you need to take advantage of it. I think now is the policy window open for that because we have talked about it since 2015 Mm -hmm. and now it's an opportunity for us to really take advantage of it and really do it. And I think that's what we'll see happen when we get to these various choke points of traffic around the city. We will see the opportunity to uh, reduce traffic. There's another piece that oftentimes isn't talked about when we say affordable housing and transit and or traffic. We oftentimes talk about the effect that transit would have had on affordable housing we very rarely talk about the effect that affordable housing has on traffic congestion if i live in smyrna but i live but i work in nashville and my job is going to have me there for the next four to five years based upon my work uh, schedule i'm driving every day but what if i could afford a house in nashville close to where i live i mean close to where i work I might move to Nashville and be closer to work. So now instead of me coming in on uh, the interstate and making that very congested, I'm in the city and I'm a 10 minute drive from my house to my job versus me being a 30, 40 minute drive away, which also leads to traffic congestion because when I'm coming on the interstate, I have to get off the interstate and get on that street versus me coming from my house, coming from another street possibly. And what if our schools were in such a condition that, People didn't want to move to the surrounding counties to get their kids in another district. Exactly. But you're still working in Nashville, which means that you got to drive into Nashville to keep your job but then drive back because that's where your child's in school. Speaking of public schools, you mentioned that 24% college graduation rate of our students who go from public schools here on on to college. What is that a sign of? Are, are our public schools successfully educating and, and uh, preparing our students and if not, what's going wrong? They are successfully educating them, but the transition from high school to college is a very daunting one. And oftentimes mm-hmm. a child who has been used to a certain class schedule and used to a certain structure when they go off to college, uh, they're now left to their own devices because they're the ones that have to wake themselves up and they're the ones that must remember to study, all those things. Uh, oftentimes what happens also is uh, the guidance counselors that were familiar with the child after graduation very rarely are they back in contact with the child to see if the child is is doing well in school. So that's why you see that tremendous drop off from those who return after the first year. You know, you go down 30 percent from 61 to 31. Uh, so kids aren't prepared mentally to go to college. They're not prepared for the fact that 
you're on a college campus and there'll be so many things that will try to draw you away from the study hall, so many things that try to draw you away from making wise decisions. This is where the mayor's office, I think, can partner with our nonprofit institutions and our school system to develop a kind of model where guidance counselors, nonprofits, and faith institutions are able to engage and stay in communication with that particular child to check up on them from time to time to see how they're doing and to mitigate, again, that huge drop-off from 61% to 30% after that first year. We'd be remiss if we didn't talk more about affordable housing. Aside from increasing funding to the Barnes Affordable Housing Fund, which most everyone uh, seems to be supportive of, what specific policy ideas do you have on the affordable housing front? All right. There's an opportunity for us to develop a partnership between our faith institutions and the uh, nonprofit developers in the city. You may have faith institutions, and I know of several, that have parcels of land that they would love to build affordable housing on, but they don't want to go through the process of incurring the debt themselves. The mayor's office could engage in having um, a consortium develop where nonprofits that are builders can have a conversation with faith institutions about keeping that land in the faith institution's hand or donating it to the city and have the nonprofits build on that site. What this does is it drives down tremendously the cost of that project because the land is given at a better rate and the nonprofits can get a mortgage or a loan at a better rate. Now you can charge lower rents or you can charge a lower purchase price for the person who's going to be buying it. It's a process that would be beneficial, and I spoke to some nonprofit developers about that already, and I think it can be done. Secondly, there must be a dedicated funding stream to the Barnes Housing Trust Fund in addition to what's put into the budget. This would allow those nonprofit developers to also have confidence that the money will always be there no matter what the budget situation because it's a dedicated funding stream. So how do we do that? One suggestion that I would have is that we look at the fund that was developed for the Convention and Visitors Bureau to help draw conventions here and buy down room rates. I would love to see the same kind of fund developed for affordable housing where the money goes directly into affordable housing and it's used specifically to build houses across the city of Nashville. So we've touched on a lot of issues today. I want to let you kind of close out any sort of issues that might have missed talking about and also give a, a closing pitch to voters as to why they should vote for Harold Love for mayor. Thank you. So a few weeks ago, a month ago, um, there was a Washington Post report that looked at where America's prisoners are born. And it spoke about some of the mitigating that was factors. Fascinating. Wasn't it though? When it talks about 37208 being the place that if you're born, that you're liable to go to jail more than likely than anybody else in the nation. Well, what does that mean when we have that moniker as a city? I think it means that we're not investing in our neighborhoods enough and investing in our children enough to give them a reason not to engage in those practices that would lead them to go to jail. I think it means we have a wonderful opportunity to build up from that place and say, now that we know this is what the statistic is, let's do something about that. Let's remind these children born in Nashville that they can do great, and wonderful things and that they have the capacity to change this world with their uh, activities that are positive, with their inventions, with their skill set, with their jobs that they're going to uh, they're going to do. And for me, it's most striking because that's the zip code that I was born in. Three, seven, two, eight, right there on Buchanan Street. So for me, I take it personal that they say this is where you're born. You're going to go to prison. That's where I live now. Uh to be the mayor of Nashville would be a wonderful opportunity. It'd be an honor. It would be a uh, wonderful blessing for me to be able to give back to the city of Nashville that's given so much to me. Again, public school product from John Early to White's Creek, K-12, through from Tennessee State to Vanderbilt and back to TSU. 
Uh, again, pastor of a church in North Nashville. I have been pastoring in Nashville for 16 years, spent some other time in Columbia, Tennessee, but I've grown to see the development in the city as something that's not necessarily negative, but just needs to be redirected. The growth is good, but it needs to be directed to other parts of our city. Uh, I love the city, and I don't just say it as a campaign slogan. Uh, Nashville gave my father an opportunity to be a great uh, public servant years ago, and that's what got me into this this thing called politics, was watching him do government good. And my mother worked at TSU for 57 years, watching her give herself to Tennessee State and students there through a program called Upward Bound. Also, you know, helped shape me to be who I am. So um, I'm prepared to serve the city in this capacity. I think that my experience at the legislature helps me. Also, we're talking about a one-year term, and I'm used to working in that short time frame from January through April. So I hope that the voters would give me consideration. And I would say this as people listen on your podcast. Even if people don't vote for me or don't want to vote for me, I would just encourage all the listeners on this podcast and those who will hear this uh, as it goes out. Let's still try to engage in civil dialogue, civil discourse. I've never said anything negative about my, any of my opponents. Uh, I try my best to you know, encourage other people to do the same thing. Because that eats away at our very core as a city when we become uh, negative in our comments. Everybody has a candidate that they favor, and I encourage them to maybe consider me as one of theirs. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much.